You are listening to the Horse Radio Network, part of the Equine Network family. Hello, and welcome to the Sport Horse Podcast. I'm Nicole Lakin. And I'm Tim Warden. And thanks for tuning into our show today. This is an interview we have been looking forward to for a while. So I'm really excited to, uh, to finally welcome Dr. Thomas Koch to the Sport Horse Podcast. Um, I first met Thomas, I think, back in 2015. He was... Uh, very generous with his time and uh, we met up for coffee and we just chatted a little bit about what the future of caring for sport horses could look like and some of his research it was um super fascinating it's honestly something i think about a little bit every every couple of months uh, because i think it truly is the future of the sport and so uh without you know giving away too much more we'll just dive right into it so uh, our guest today is dr thomas coke thomas is an associate professor in the department of biomedical sciences uh, at the Ontario Veterinary College at the University of Guelph in Canada. He completed a residency of internal medicine at the Ontario Veterinary College, and he obtained his PhD degree from the University of Guelph. His current research focus is on stem cell and tissue engineering-based therapies, with joint cartilage repair being the main area of investigation. He is also the founder, CEO, and CSO of UQ Cell, a regenerative medicine company founded on 15 years of scientific investigation into stem cells at the Ontario Veterinary College. Hi, Thomas, and welcome to the Sport Horse Podcast. Thank you, Tim. So we have a really complex topic to talk about today. So we're going to jump right in and get right into it. Um, so osteoarthritis is the topic today, and it's a complex multifactorial disease that is caused by mechanical factors and systemic factors, as well as things like uh, comorbidities and altered pain processing. Can you provide us with a brief overview of the disease and, and how it typically pre- presents in horses? Yeah, I think osteoarthritis is is a complex. I don't think it's a, a single disease. It, it, it's a term probably with many different types of underlying conditions that manifest in in a similar manner. So it, it's it's a syndrome or a black box, <laughs> I think, uh, with our understanding. Uh, but obviously, it it manifests in in a number of ways. Number one, the horse gets painful and and it's lame and and that's generally why uh, it's noticed to have a problem and why veterinarians are, are called or people go to the doctor they start to have pain in the joint why they have that pain uh, i think is as you say multifactorial and extremely complex and it probably reflects still a poor understanding of of what's really going on and our inability to tease out different underlying mechanisms. But typical uh, signs or diagnosis of osteoarthritis is pain. You can have uh, loss of cartilage within the joint. You can have uh, bone abnormalities. And eventually on on x-rays, you'll see new bone uh, growth and spurs around the edges of the joint and uh, on more sophisticated imaging modalities you can start to see subchondral bone changes Uh, you can have joint capsule thickening Uh, on x-rays if the cartilage disappear you can have what's seen as joint space narrowing because now you don't you don't see the cartilage on, on a radiograph. So when that disappears, the bone seems closer together. So then you're getting more to in-state cartilage, uh, in-state osteoarthritis. 
Interesting. And and I wanted to dive into that a little more just really quickly. Um, so pre-purchase exams are, I'd say, one of the most common topics in our world, uh, like with a lot of people going over to Europe and looking for their next you know, star horse or even just locally looking for the next horse they're going to buy. And you mentioned radiographs and some of the what it can show you what it versus what it can't show you. I'm wondering when you look at those radiographs and maybe you see some of that narrowings, there isn't as much cartilage as perhaps we would anticipate maybe being a sign of some degenerative changes there. Will, if you start to see that narrowing, is it something where all horses will eventually develop pain there? Or can some horses have a bit of narrowing and never present with actual pain? Like, I'm just curious to know, like, is that radiograph finding or discovery always indicative of actually having pain? I mean, there's other people that are much more experienced in pre-purchase exams. So I'm not going to go into, I don't feel comfortable giving, you know, expert advice on that. But I think pre-purchase exams is almost every veterinarian's worst nightmare uh, <laughs> because uh, it's, you you see this horse for a very brief period of time, or you may not even see it. You're presented with radiograph taken by somebody else. Um, I think one thing we need to I think of the joint as an organ. Uh, it's a it's an organ in its own right, and you have subchondral bone, you have cartilage, you have the joint capsule, you have the synovial membrane, and and these all uh, play different roles. But I think it's fair to say that there's not always a good correlation between structure and pain. So you can have a horse that you come out for a lameness evaluation and you inject a local anesthetic and it gets better, indicating that the pain is coming from within that joint. And then you take a radiograph and it's pristine. You can't see any abnormalities. And then you have a pre-purchase exam in a sound horse and you take a radiograph and you wonder why is this horse not lame because there are radiographic changes. So I think radiographs, are, it's, it's, um, it's extremely uh, tricky to interpret. Um, I think you don't, as I said, you don't see cartilage on a radiograph. You don't necessarily see subchondral bone edema uh, and other things so i think there are other imaging modalities that will help us and are starting to help us such as mri and maybe ct scan those are obviously much much more uh, involved um, i think biomarkers is is something that might help us in the future but i think yeah if Buying a horse, I mean, the best predictor is past performance, right? So if you have an older horse that's doing what you want it to do at the level you want to to compete, that's your best predictor. Uh, and, and personally, I would take that horse over any horse based on radiographic evaluation. The problem then becomes when you have a young, unproven horse or a horse that has been not performing at the level you want to use it, then how do you infer and make predictions there? And uh, that that gets really complicated. And I think a lot of young horses are not given a chance due to radiographic findings that may or may never become an issue. <laughs> <laughs> a little side note here. I think that that 
um, really speaks to the value of having like baseline examinations and imaging and stuff as well. Obviously, that doesn't really help you at the point of pre-purchase exam. But, you know, when you have, whether it's young horses or older horses, having those baselines so that you can see the change over time, which I think can be a better indicator than the starting point. Um, But bringing it back, because we could... (laughs) go a million different ways on this um, and talk for hours. Um, I, I do think that there's a lot of misconception about osteoarthritis and you've already spoken to that a bit when you talked about how you know complex it is and how how it's really more of um, a, a system than it is um, you know a specific disease. Um, so I think that most people like me know that there's there's uh, with cartilage lining and with bone that that makes up osteoarthritis. But in a paper that you published recently in, in the Journal of Tissue Engineering, you explain how the changes to bone play a large part in osteoarthritis on their own. And that pain that can be felt is often coming from those changes. Could you explain to us this relationship between the bone and cartilage and, and maybe help us understand and, and hopefully break some of this mis- those misconceptions? Yeah, so again, I, th- I think of the joint as, as an organ, uh, and the end of the bones are covered with what we call um, hyaline cartilage. And then uh, under underneath that, you have a layer of calcified cartilage, and then you have a subchondral bone plate, and then you have your kind of bone marrow of the long bones uh, underneath that. So, and that... And all of that, all of those structures have some elasticity uh, in them. So bones do have, I mean, they're obviously stiff, but they still have some elasticity in them to absorb that pressure uh, of weight bearing and landing after a jump. Um, So if we look at it from inside the joint towards the bone, you have synovial fluid uh, with creates this almost together with the cartilage surface this almost frictionless surface uh, that is i think some people say a thousand times uh, less frictions than you know uh, uh, ice uh, so it's extremely smooth and slippery and allow for these bones to move against each other uh, without too much wear and tear on the on the cartilage but then you can have a, a single event a, a traumatic event where there is a big impact on the cartilage uh, and in people often it's um, cruciate ligament uh, rupture and, and so on, where there's one standalone significant event that really damaged the cartilage. Or you can have just, you land really hard on it, um, or it can be over time just overloading uh, the cartilage. And then the cartilage starts to change and the, and the calcified cartilage and subchondral bone starts to change underneath. So it's, it's, it's just like training horses, right? Horses, you train with pressure and release. <laughs> uh, and here, uh, it's the same thing. If there's too much pressure or increased demand on this biomechanical tissue, it will respond by trying to get stronger. Uh, so in this case, the subchondral bone might start to get thicker and stiffer to withstand the pressure. But in turn, 
the downside to that is that now it's not as elastic. So the overlay, overlaying cartilage now is getting squeezed between the other bone and this stiffer subchondral bone, and then then it starts to get get damaged. So those are some of the mechanical drivers, load load driven drivers. Um, but then there are also what we refer to as crosstalk. So there are also molecular changes going on. And and that includes maybe that like any like any other thing, if you if you bang your hand or, or your arm, there's swelling, there's increased blood supply in the in the in in this osteochondral unit as we call it, it reacts the same way. You get an increase in blood supply. Uh, and with that you also get an increase in nerve growth factor that stimulates nerve growth. So now you have a more sensitized uh, tissue that it, that picks up on pain more easily. Really, really interesting. And you mentioned a little bit some of the similarities between the, the training or exercising and and so, sort of what we see. Like, is there much research out there talking about or demonstrating like an ideal way to train in a way that protects joints? Because on one hand, like we do need to to load the body at certain points as we exercise to, you know, stimulate the body to adapt so that it gets, you know, stronger and better prepared for whatever sport we, we want to uh, execute. But then at the same time, as you say, like there's that issue of like the more overload that occurs, like it cause, has some of those changes to the structure and a little bit more stiffness. Like, do you, do you, is there much out there or is it still largely unexplored in that way? Or So, so, I think at the moment we're probably to some extent missing the tools to uh, have more customized training. Uh, so again, I'm not a horse trainer and so on, but my impression is that horses are to a large extent trained based on historical experience. Uh, you know, um, race horses are trained in the morning even that may not actually be optimal if we look at circadian rhythms and and so on and what's known now about daily uh, daily rhythms uh, but that that's kind of the tradition you're training them in the morning and and you, i think you start out with more or less um one training regime fits all and then you make adjustments as you go go along based on on daily observations of of the horse I think there may be some work done on uh, C-reactive protein now as maybe uh, a blood indicator where you could, on a whole body level, get an indication of whether the horse is being overtrained or not. Um, but I don't know how widely that is being applied. Uh, in my In my lab, We've been looking at uh, microRNAs as possible biomarkers. So microRNAs are small pieces of RNA that are involved in almost all biological processes, uh, influencing protein expression. And the advantage of microRNA compared to protein uh, proteins as biomarkers are that they are not as species-specific uh, and they're very resistant to degradation uh, because they're only about 20 uh, nucleotides long. Uh, 
So we have done some work in horses without any signs of uh, joint disease and horses that came to the hospital for osteochondrosis uh, surgery or osteoarthritic uh, surgeries. And we took synovial fluid samples as well as blood plasma samples, and we did next-generation sequencing uh, on it, which is a powerful genomics tool that looks at all uh, kind of microRNAs uh, expressed. And we did see differences in the plasma uh, between a horse within, with no known signs of, of joint disease compared to horses with joint disease. So that's early days, but it may uh, prove to be a monitoring tool where you could then create a panel of microRNA uh, biomarkers that could indicate, oh, this horse, you can probably train a bit harder because none of these microRNAs are showing up. Or this horse, maybe you need to back off a little bit uh, because there are microRNAs now circulating in the blood that we know most likely originate from joints somewhere in the body. It wouldn't tell you exactly what joint, but maybe those are tools that can be used to identify subclinical joint uh, abnormalities. Super, super fascinating. I uh, Just as you were talking, I had about a million ideas, but I think Nicole's going to kill me if I get too far <laughs> off the script here. So uh, I'll uh, push on and maybe I'll bug you later for some of those answers, but um, uh, you talked a little bit about it already in terms of exercise and a little bit of the demands we put on horses. But I think that like osteoarthritis is probably top of mind in most stables that I walk into with regards to like what they are trying to avoid with their horses. A lot of the supplements that they give that may or may not work uh, to, to address that. But what is it about sport horses that, makes them tend to struggle with the disease? Is it purely like the athletic uh, aspect that we put them through? Or is it even that like just the way the horse's body is built with like the huge amount of weight that they must carry around that that also impacts just like what predisposes horses to osteoarthritis? Uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's probably more more complex than that, but I mean I think obviously genetic predisposition and genetic makeup of the horse uh, plays a role. Um, confirmation of the horse uh, would play a role, and then how the horse is being worked and and handled, um, and whether it's given sufficient time to adapt to training load and and so on. And I think horses like we've just touched upon probably adapts uh, in an individual way and i mean people also have different levels of of pain threshold and how hard people can push themselves um, so i mean there are also the concepts of snips or, or genomic tools so single uh, nucleotide polymorphism where in genes that can be just a single nucleotide that's changed within a gene and that has a an effect on how that gene functions and so on uh, so that's what in for example in in um, in food animals that's being used a lot to uh, breed animals uh, with desired traits 
so fat content in milk and protein content in milk, uh, they they use SNPs to predict the offspring's uh, behavior from certain bulls. So obviously bulls do not pr- produce milk, but you can use this tool to analyze the genetic makeup of a bull and predict how the daughters of that bull is going to produce going to produce milk. <laughs> so, and there are some uh, studies reported in horses looking at SNPs and osteochondrosis, for example, and they found a couple of regions on the equine chromosome 14 where there were changes and horses with those changes were more at risk of developing uh, hog osteochondrosis. So I think genetic makeup plays a role and it's something that's largely underexplored and and whether the industry would be willing to actually apply such tools uh, is another question because obviously then suddenly some breeding animals would increase in values and others would decrease in value mm-hmm. and, and I think that's a general problem in in the equine industry where a lot of breeding animals are owned by I mean a lot of people only have one breeding animal so if the value of that one animal goes up or down that has a big impact on that particular horse owner whereas in in food animal production the industry goes together as a whole Uh, and uh, and then yeah confirmation i think general like pre-purchase exam people will look at confirmation are the bones on top of each other are they are they angled to each other uh, that would load the joint differently from one side to the other and 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 those are known risk factors obviously we know stories of horses with crooked legs that has fantastic careers, so it, it's it's uh, not written in stone. And then again, yeah, how you train the horses, and um, and and we all know that some people will take a young horse, and and if you're a good professional rider, you can make a young horse look very good in a very short period of time. But it make maybe that comes at a price. Whereas if you bring them along a bit slower uh, and and more carefully maybe uh, their longevity is better yeah i'm so fascinated i we talk all the time on this podcast about you know the intersections between science and horsemanship and you know you spoke earlier about how a lot of the sport in no matter the discipline even on the racetrack things are um are coming from historical practice and and sort of what's worked in the past, but I can't think of a single horse person who wouldn't like to know if on get you know in a particular phase of a horse's life if they're causing more harm than good by you know pushing them a certain way, overloading. Um, you know, those are the things that I think. You know, it's it's so exciting to see that the science is evolving in that direction. Um, and that there may be a way someday to have that, you know, additional information to pull from, to, to have as a tool in your toolbox to say, you know, this horse is, is showing signs of, of, you know, the evolution of this disease right now. So, you know, we need to pull back and settle things down before, you know, we push forward, um, I don't know. I think the opportunities are are really endless and it's exciting, especially when we talk about increasing the longevity of our horses' careers. Um, yeah, and I mean, there are, I mean, lots of research also, what, what they call uh, uh, kind of 
lab on a chip, so microfluidic devices. Uh, where <clears throat> um, so if we can find a panel of, of biomarkers uh, from the blood, but I mean, people have looked for this for, for decades, so it's not easy. Uh, but if, if it were to happen and you can like, People with diabetes, you have a small prick and a small uh, drop of blood, uh, and then you put it on one of these small uh, stall site tests, and it will look specifically for 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 those joint markers. Then that that may be uh, that would obviously be a big advantage to try and do personalized uh, training programs. But, but yeah. So, uh, but yeah, I'm, I'm curious to what you, some of your other speakers have might have said about uh, <clears throat> C-reactive protein and, and and so on because that's probably the one that has been most talked about. But I don't know if it's actually how much it's being implemented. Yeah, I don't think we've had anybody that we've really talked about with that yet. But you know, maybe that's a, a challenge for us, Tim. Maybe we need to mm -hmm. get that conversation going a bit more. Um, but uh, talking a little bit about, you know, the future and, and things to look forward to, I know through your company, Excel, you've launched a clinical trial and you're examining stem cell injections to, ta to target osteoarthritis. Could you speak to how you hope these cells can modulate the joint environment to limit osteoarthritis progression? Because I think that's sort of the obvious next point in the conversation is if you know it's happening and you can catch it early, how can we slow it down or, or maybe even stop it? Yeah, so that, <clears throat> that's that's right. I have a, a company, uh, EQCell, um, where we have made quite a bit of progress over the last few years, and uh, we, we are well backed by investors now, and we have uh, really good relationships and, and collaborators, uh, including Wood and Riddle uh, and uh, Colorado State University, uh, and then the Ontario Veterinary College. Um, so I think some of the misconceptions around stem cells, if, if we can start there, uh, is that um, you can inject them anywhere and they will become uh, any type of cell guided by the, by the local microenvironment. Um, that's not true. Uh, these cells do not magically trans transform into other cells when you inject them into the body. In the lab, we can use them uh, and differentiate them, as we say, into other types of cells. So in my lab, we are using stem cells to create joint cartilage in the lab uh, with a goal of developing uh, a cartilage uh, implant uh, for repair of focal or small cartilage defects. But what the way we are using the cells right now is that these cells are secreting uh, a lot of factors and they're cross-talking with cells within the joint once you inject them. But they do not become cartilage cells. They do not create new cartilage when we inject them. And I think that's important to recognize. And another misconception is that the cells are not recognized by the immune system. Uh, I mean, we know that these cells are recognized by the immune system, so they don't stick around for, for that long within the joint, but they have what we call a hit and run effect. So they, the brief period of time that they are in the joint, 
they're influencing other cells within the body and they're changing the function of those cells uh, in a beneficial uh, way. So I think it's important to use these cells early on in the disease process. So end-stage uh, osteoarthritis, it's unlikely that these cells is going to have a big effect. And we are seeing now that veterinarians are starting to use them earlier and earlier and as a first-line treatment. So in Ontario, we have a, a study going on led by Dr. Judith Koenig uh, from the Ontario Veterinary College together with a local practitioner, Dr. Bree Henderson. So in, in those horses, so these are client-owned horses, they have a, a lameness, a, a mild to moderate uh, lameness that is uh, ascribed to synovitis. So they're, they're lame, you know, grade one, two, uh, three. So we exclude horses with a lameness score on the AEP scale of four to five. So those horses, we have treated more than 10 now, and they've all responded positively and, and gotten better without any serious adverse reaction. So, I mean, these cells uh, are safe to use. We don't have any serious adverse reactions, and, and all the horses have, have improved. Uh, some of the horses have received all standard kinds of treatment, including other biologics, and they are non-responders prior to receiving our treatment. Uh, so that's, that's extremely encouraging. That's really, really exciting. I, I'm curious, and forgive me because I'm asking a little bit for my own interest. But um, what are your your outcome parameters? How are you measuring um, the success of the cells in these horses, especially when they are, you know, presenting with mild to moderate um, symptoms? And um, obviously, you you can use imaging parameters, but um, I'm just curious what your other your other outcome measurements are. Yeah. So so. Since we are working in client-owned horses, we're, we're somewhat limited in, in how in-depth we can uh, assess the response. So we are not doing um, follow-up um, joint fluid sampling of synovial fluid because that would be too invasive. Um, so the primary time point is six weeks after the treatment. Uh, what is the degree of lameness there com compared to baseline? So the horses are evaluated for lameness uh, prior to treatment and they're videotaped so that surgeons blinded uh, to, to the horse can assess the degree of lameness and then we treat them with a single uh, stem cell injection. And then we look at them three weeks after treatment and six weeks after treatment and then there's owner questionnaires uh, 18 weeks later as, as a follow-up. But the primary outcome time point is six weeks later. Uh, and the horses are videotaped uh, and they're then blindly uh, assessed, blinded by, by surgeons for degree of lameness. And that's where we can see that the lameness score is, is going down uh, com compared to prior to treatment. And a number of these horses had been treated uh, in various different ways uh, prior to enrollment in, in the study. So we have another study going on in research horses where we have a, a surgical model uh, of synovitis and, and 
osteoarthritis. So that's where we can do more in-depth evaluation of, of what's going on. Uh, and that includes MRI assessment uh, of the horses as well and repeated synovial fluid sampling of the joints to see what's going on. And in that study, we have had six horses enrolled now. Three had received uh, control uh, treatment and three received the stem cell treatment. And again, we see that the stem cell treated horses are doing better than, than the control. But we're, we're still analyzing that data and we're going to enroll another six horses for a total of 12. But it's very time consuming. These horses are exercised daily on treadmills or, or lunged. So it, um, it's very labor intensive to, to do the study. So it's broken into two cohorts of six horses. Really, really interesting and really exciting. Congratulations. I, I, you know, clinical trials are not easy to run, uh, especially in, in animal models. So, uh, j- just really, really impressive. Um, I think we'll, we'll try to link to as much documentation as we can in our show notes, just giving people an opportunity to go and read a little bit more about it. Cause it's really, really cool. Um, just looking at the clock, I know, uh, we're maybe running a little bit over, so we'll finish up with the last question here that we ask every, every guest. And it's something a little bit different, but if you could talk directly to a horse and maybe like, you know, tell them something, or maybe you want to educate them about something, what would you want to tell them? What do you wish horses understood or, or knew? Yeah. I mean, that's a good, that's a good question. I mean, I think we, we are obviously the stewards of these animals and we 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 use them for our enjoyment uh, and i mean in professional sports it's being used uh, as a means of of generating income and 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 status and all of that um but i don't know what i would say to the horse but i hope i hope a horse that i worked with would view me as a steward of its well-being and and health and despite own ambitions uh, put the horse health first uh, and 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 develop that that partnership uh, and and be and and try to better myself all the time to take the best possible care of this animal oh, i think that's a, a great message yeah yeah, for sure. So thank you so much, Thomas. Really, really appreciate it. Really, really fascinating. I think it probably could have gone for on for hours and hours. So, uh, you know, we'll, we'll wrap it up there, but maybe we'll have you on in the future to provide some research updates because it's really exciting work that you're doing. Yeah, thank you. And yeah, we're starting work also using stem cells to treat bacterial infections. So uh, I'd love to have the opportunity to discuss that with you at some at some point. <laughs> Absolutely. It's a date. Okay. Thank you for the opportunity. Thank you. Well, that was fascinating. Um, You know, I personally definitely came to this conversation with my own misconceptions about osteoarthritis, but what's most exciting to me is the conversation and the evolution of the science in this area and the idea that there could be a day that with the simple blood draw outside of your horse's stall, um, that you can get an idea of where they are right now and make mod- modifications to your training um, to, 
you know, your management of that horse and potentially prevent things that could shorten their, their sport career, um, could cause them pain. And to me, that's what this is all about. Like we're, we're trying to bridge these gaps. And I think it's so important for our audience to know that the science is not far away. It's not, you know, uh, us living on Mars. It's, it's things that are, are happening, you know, now and could be available really soon to just about everyone. And, like I said, during our conversation, I, I don't think that there's a single horse person out there that wouldn't want to know um, if there's something that they could tweak that could make that profound of an impact on their horse's soundness and, and the longevity of their career. So to me, it's incredibly fascinating and exciting. Um, and I think the the possibilities are really endless. Yeah, I completely agree. Like it really is the frontier of sport, I think, um, you know, obviously we, we chat a little bit more about the clinical side of things today and, and maybe when our issues arise, like how does this all fit together? But, uh, like some of the biomarker work that Thomas is doing, um, just has huge implications for the future of sport. I remember when I was going through my PhD and I was still very much so on the human side, I was talking to a very well-known, uh, track and field coach and, that person was very generous with their time. We sort of talked about like, what would it take for me to get involved and like to join a team that would help coach, um, you know, the world's best uh, track and field athletes. And he's like, well, yeah, you really do need a PhD. And like the future is a PhD in biochemistry or molecular biology or something similar. Like that's what the future of sport truly is. is people who can, you know, look at these biomarkers, look at what's chemically going on in the body. And then you're tweaking training based on that. And like that, is where the sport is going. And I think, um, you know, we're not there yet in, in our world, but this just shows like we are inching closer. And like, I think one day, like as you said, Nicole, like that's what it's going to be, that we're going to be able to get these uh, tools in place. They're going to be easy enough to use that we can really personalize training on a day-to-day basis and know exactly what the horse needs at, and at an exact time to get their bodies to perform at their best while also minimizing that risk of injury and um, you know, career ending issues. Yeah. And I have one last thought, you know, we just, we just got back from AAEP in, in San Diego, San, no, San Antonio, San Diego next year. <laughs> um, and, uh, we got to talk to a lot of people about the work of the equine high performance sports group. And, um, you know, it's, it's really true that a lot of sports medicine in the equine world tends to be focused on the treatment of injury, the treatment of disease, putting out fires. Um, And what a lot of these top practitioners who are treating these sport horses would rather be doing is preventing them in the first place. And this is a a huge step towards that. So very exciting. Um, Hopefully more to come from Thomas Koch and from other um, really brilliant researchers out there that are doing great work. So that's a wrap for today's episode. You can find the links to today's guest and the show notes at www.sporthorsepodcast.com. You can also follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Sport Horse Series. Um, We've got lots of great content there. Let you know about our new episodes and new video content coming out um, hopefully soon. Uh, As always, you can have all 20 plus shows of the Horse Radio Network with you wherever you go with our free app for iPhone and Android. Just go to the App Store and search Horse Radio Network. And here's to keeping your sport horse happy and healthy. (laughs) 